Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, when it comes to the Bible, there are certain things in it that most Christians, and even really most non-Christians in our country, have a certain sense of familiarity with. Perhaps most notably among them is John 3.16. Like, I feel like even if you went to Sunday school like three times 20 years ago, there's an offhand chance that you have that Bible verse memorized. Like, it's just that iconic. Uh, another passage of Scripture that we're really familiar with is Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And you might be thinking, wait, I'm not familiar with that at all until I tell you what it is. That is where the Ten Commandments are given to the people of Israel. So even if you can't list all of the Ten Commandments, you probably know that they exist, right? Uh, and you can probably at least name uh, a few. Tamara, can you name all Ten Commandments in order? Negative. In, neg- in uh, reverse order? Negative. Uh, I probably could, um, but I'm not going to try because I don't want to look like a fool on my own podcast. I mean, uh, I know I what they know. all are, but I don't know if I can put them in order right now off the top of my head. Right. Um, but here's the thing. Just because we're familiar with the biblical concept— that doesn't necessarily mean that we have a good understanding of its meaning or its significance or its importance. In fact, sometimes the parts of the Bible that are most familiar kind of in our culture are the very same parts about which we have the most misconceptions. And that is certainly the case with the Ten Commandments. And as a result, there's a lot of bad interpretations about a great many things relating to the Ten Commandments floating around the internet, floating around our culture, and just kind of in the air we breathe and the zeitgeist of what we understand the Ten Commandments to be in America in 2023. So today, what I wanted to talk about were some of those misconceptions. And uh, some of them may come as a shock to you. Some of them you're like, oh yeah, I knew that. Um, But we are titling this episode, Five Hot Takes on the Ten Commandments. And so maybe you'll agree with some of my hot takes, or maybe some of them will sound a bit foreign or new to you. But hopefully by the end, uh, we'll all have a little bit better grasp on the finer points of the Ten Commandments. So that's what we're doing today, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So today we are exploring five hot takes on the Ten Commandments. And we're going to start off with a bang. Are you ready, Tamara? I'm ready. I'm going to start probably with my hottest take. Like, this one's fresh out of the oven. Okay, thank you. Hot take number one. The Sabbath is not on Sunday. (gasps) You liar. I know. So in the fourth commandment, uh, it's uh, calling us to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. 
And in the context of the Old Testament law, uh, the Sabbath was from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And during that period, Israel was forbidden from working. Uh, And there's a whole lot of other laws in the Mosaic Covenant that um, outline what that meant. And when by the time you get to Jesus, there were uh, teachers and experts in the law that had added even more to that. And that's where Jesus got into a couple of different kerfuffles with the Pharisees over some of those things. But this was like a really big deal, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. But Christians, we are not really sure what to do with that because we don't actually keep the Sabbath. But because God's word says that we have to keep the Sabbath, we're like, well, how do we just like interpret that literally, but then make an arbitrary judgment call about that? And we say like, well, the Sabbath, it means you go to church on Sunday. And that's what it means to keep the Sabbath holy, which is, you know, it's a good thing to go to church on Sunday, but that's not what this is talking about. And it's kind of this arbitrary jump that we make and and people take it to you know an extreme level like the most ardent supporters of they call them a, a Sunday sabbatarian uh, they would advocate for um, businesses to be closed on Sunday because you should not work on the Sabbath on Sunday I mean in fact like um, Chick-fil-A does Hobby Lobby do it too I think so I think yeah. they're closed on they're closed Sunday. on Sunday and yeah. I think that's a good thing that you know they give their you know, all their employees can expect at least one day off that they can plan around. And, you know, if they are followers of Jesus, they go to church on Sunday. That's a good thing. So I'm not going to like dog on that. Um, But I'm going to say that that's not how you interpret the fourth commandment properly, because Sunday isn't the Sabbath. Uh, The Sabbath literally means seventh, as in the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. Right. Because Sunday is day one of the week, even Mm -hmm. though oftentimes we view it as day seven. It's not. Right. It's the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. It's the day that Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week is the way the account goes, which is Sunday. Sunday. And it came directly after the Sabbath. So in light of that, uh, if we interpret the Bible literally, uh, we really have two options here. Uh, Either we have been violating the Sabbath law and um, we need to go the route of Seventh-day Adventists and change our whole week to revolve around Saturdays instead of Sundays, or, and I think this is the better option, we could uh, recognize that when Jesus completed his work on the cross, he freed us from the Mosaic law, and so we aren't actually bound to the letter of the Mosaic law anymore. That's why we can eat shellfish. That's why we can have blended cotton, and that is why um, this Sabbath commandment doesn't actually apply to us in the letter of the law. And in the same way, here's where the implications get weird or kind of scary, and this is why this is my hottest take, uh, even the Ten Commandments aren't legally binding to us in the way that we might think. And remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy is um, just the, the perfect example of that because we do not keep the Sabbath um, and we don't even try. And you know, we might try to backdoor some kind of interpretation of it, um, but really we tend to ignore this commandment. And so as I have often heard it said, when it comes to the Old Testament law, including the Ten Commandments, we can say that that's my revelation, but that's not my covenant, meaning we're not in the Old Covenant anymore under the Mosaic Law. And then uh, another way to put it is that it was written for me, but it was not written to me. Right, which means that um, there are 
many aspects of the Old Testament. Like we shouldn't just throw the Old Testament out the window, but to sit down and think that we have to abide by every single thing written in it. Uh, Just going back to your example about shellfish, right? Uh, And blended cotton. And uh, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that uh, God had given to his people of Israel and said, if you are my people, this is what sh- this is the way that you're going to live and this is what you're going to live by. Uh, but we clearly don't live that way as Christians. And that is because the law was fulfilled in Christ in his death and resurrection. So we are no longer bound by the law in the way that we see the Old Testament and the people who were actually existing in the time of the Old Testament, the way they were bound to that law. We are no longer because we are freed in Christ. And that doesn't mean we throw it all out the window. Right, yeah. So in Galatians uh, 3.24, Paul tells the Galatian church that the law is our tutor, meaning that it points us to Christ, but it also shows us the way in which God operates in the world and has called us to operate in the world. And the way in which God has called us to operate in the world is that we should engage in rhythms of work and rest. And so we should work most of the time, uh, but we should also rest on a regular interval. And that rest is just good for us, but it's also uh, teaching us to lean into our faith because while we are resting, God is still working. So while the Ten Commandments aren't literally laws for Christians, they do show us the morality and the values of God, uh, which is authoritative to us but not in the one-to-one literal sense. There's some interpretation that must take place. Right. So they still matter in regards to our faith and in the way that we live out our faith. So the idea of um, taking the Sabbath and observing the Sabbath, though we're not going to stop doing every single thing on Saturday, right? Because that's technically the Sabbath. Um, And by the way, we're recording this on a Saturday, so... We are violating the Sabbath as we speak. Yes, uh, in, the lit- in the literal sense. Uh, but you can still see the essence of the law and what even Christ himself had did uh, in his own ministry and in the fulfillment of his ministry is the rhythms of work and rest. So overall, we should still find time within our own lives, within our own weeks to rest. Um, and if we want to call that Sabbath... You know, we want to actually give it that term and say today is my Sabbath day is Wednesday or it's Tuesday. Uh, But today is going to be the day where I am actively choosing to rest. And that is for the flourishment of your your entire life, really, because that's what Christ had intended for these things to be is not just rules and regulations that you abide by. And they have absolutely no benefit in your life. They have um really nothing apart from I'm going to do this because God told me to. But the idea of creating rhythms of work and rest is actually for your uh, physical flourishment, mental, emotional, like we need rest. And uh, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you can't deny that rest is a necessity in our life. And so the fact that we are called to rest isn't, um, isn't like the most outlandish thing. Right. And I would say you are morally obligated to rest on a regular interval because time and time again, both through the Old Testament law, which we're no longer bound to, but again, through the ministry of Jesus, Mm -hmm. this is something that is reaffirmed again and again, a regular interval of rest. I would actually not call Wednesday my Sabbath. Why? Because 
the Sabbath is on Saturday. It's sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And there are people all around the world who still uh, consider themselves under the Mosaic law who observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so I think Christians, particularly uh, white evangelicals, we tend to misappropriate that word a lot in a way that I think it could be culturally offensive uh, to our Jewish uh, brothers and sisters who are keeping the Sabbath and it's literal. and it is literally the yeah. Sabbath. Yeah. So, and also, like I would say, Sabbath is not a verb; it's a noun. You say I'm Sabbathing. No, you're resting. And the reason why you're resting <laughs> no. is because God established through the observance of the Sabbath uh, a a rhythm of work and rest, where you work most of the time. Six days you shall work, but then one day you shall rest. And so that's a pretty good model. And even like I don't think that that's necessarily like the exact model that we have to keep to because, you know, we live in a modern society that has a five-day work week. So we get two days of rest. Um, and so, and maybe you're doing yard work and that doesn't count as rest on whatever day. So, you know, it can get complicated when you're trying to like be legalistic about it. Right. Uh, but there's this general principle that you are morally obligated to establish a rhythm of work and rest. And both of those are important uh, for you to uh, live by faith and also to live a productive, healthy life. Yeah, I think you have a you feel stronger about the terms than I do, but I understand like how can we be uh culturally sensitive to what that means for people in a different part of the world? The what actually Sabbath means versus trying to label the essence of it by still using the exact word. Yeah, I'd say the only place in the New Testament that I can think of where the Sabbath is not literally used to refer to, to that sundown day. on Friday to sundown yeah. on Saturday would be in Hebrews, where it talks about Jesus um, entering into the Sabbath rest of salvation in Jesus, where we, we cease from all our strivings uh, right. in faith in him. That's about the only place I see it used in a non-literal way in in the Bible and in the New Testament. So, I mean... You can fight me on whether you want to use it. Whether uh, you want to use the literally term Sabbath. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I wouldn't. I, I understand that now. <laughs> I'm learning something new about you as we're recording this podcast. I did not know that you had such a strong opinion about the term Sabbath and people using it. I know that we don't have to observe it on um, sundown Friday to Saturday. Right. But I didn't know that you wouldn't even call another day of the week your sabbath rest and i don't usually get on a soapbox about it but since we're here you know i mean you it's a small enough thing that i'm like i understand that this is theologically persnickety but while we're talking about it right i'm gonna let it rip you know all right well here we are that's our first hot take that was probably my hottest of the hottest takes uh my second hot take is uh still still pretty warm though uh but we'll dive into that one in just a moment so hot take number two The Ten Commandments should not be posted outside courthouses or in public school classrooms. And all God's people said, you flaming liberal. I was going to say, everybody just left the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Whoever's left, thank you for staying. Yeah. So this is probably my second hottest take, or maybe it's my hottest take, depending on who you are and this where you politically align. This is probably your hottest take. Oh, interesting. I think but I feel like it one. naturally flows from my first hot take. And also, especially when we consider that the United States has a long tradition of separation in church and state. Um, but this take, it stands in contrast to long-standing culture war talking points among conservatives. Uh, and there's been this back and forth in conservative circles um, between, you know, 
conservative legislatures and politicians and religious freedom groups. And usually the religious liberty groups win in getting the Ten Commandments removed from courthouses and other public spaces. And this has been going on like literally like 40, 50 years. Back in 1980, it happened in Kentucky. There was Ten Commandments removed from the outside of courthouses. Uh, Since then, it's happened a bunch of other times, including in Tennessee, Alabama, again in Kentucky in 2004, in Texas, in Utah, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and again in Oklahoma in 2015. And the prevailing ruling is that you can't put a distinctly religious fixture in a public space uh, because that's a violation of church and state. And the laws of the land must be established through official processes stewarded by elected officials and not by divine fiat. That's just the way our Constitution is established in this country, and it's worked out pretty good so far. Uh, More recently, uh, just this year actually, or was it last year? I'll have to look in. We'll link in the show notes a a news article to it. There was a bill in Texas that was struck down. Actually, I think it was this year that uh, would require public schools to add displays in their classrooms with the Ten Commandments. Get this. This is very specific. That are at least 16 inches wide and 20 inches tall and, quote, are in a size and typeface that is legible to a person with average vision from anywhere in the classroom. End quote. Uh, and it was struck down for basically the same reason. You can't have a uh, a distinctly religious teaching uh, in a a public school system. Um, there can be teachings that are influenced by religious things, but you can't be advocating for the religious authority in a public school system that is tax funded because we have separation of church and state. So, what do you think about this, Tamara? Uh, the, why are we on this so often? Like, we always hear about like the the Ten Commandments and the courthouses, and this recently, this uh, kind of it felt more like a publicity stunt with the governor of Texas, like advocating for you have to put the Ten Commandments in classrooms. Like, um, is this something we should be like fighting about, or is this a lot of sideways energy? Um, I've never really understood why people get so upset when the Ten Commandments are not in like state official buildings because I always understood it to be, well, that makes sense. Why would they put um, the Ten Commandments up but not something from the Quran or not something from another religion because there's no official state religion. So simply based on the Constitution, it didn't make much sense anyways. But from a Christian perspective, um, I think the talking points are often like they're taking God out of our country because they're taking the Ten Commandments down. Um, that's also an interesting argument to me because God does not exist on, on the a plaque, plaque of yeah. a list of things. And how many people read the Ten Commandments and instantly think like, oh, what a loving Savior that I have you know, I can come to this uh, realization of salvation in Christ, and He has come to um, care for my sins and because I work on Saturday all the time. But y- you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just don't understand why it's the Ten Commandments that everyone's like really upset about, and maybe because it's like the easy to read laws in the Old Testament are the Ten Commandments. And so then you put those on courthouses because that's also where law is happening. So I think maybe that was the parallel at one point in time. Um, But I don't think the Ten Commandments being put up in public spaces is the best witness for Christians. 
especially because even as Christians who are not bound by the old covenant, um, we are set free in Christ and we have freedom because he has fulfilled the law. Like there's just a lot missing if we're trying to say best case scenario, the Ten Commandments in public spaces is like an evangelistic tool. Um, like there's a lot missing. So I don't think immediately somebody reads the Ten Commandments and realizes that they are in need of a savior and Jesus has come to be the one to save them. Right. So I, yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways we can go about how do we be Christians within like the political setting? How do we be Christians within um, a nation that is specifically separated from the church and the state? Uh, And I don't think, um, making the Ten Commandments on in public spaces is our best battleground. Yeah. At best, I feel like it's hermeneutically confusing. Like, they just post them with no commentary, like, how are we interpreting this? What did, what relationship does the law have to the gospel? Then your plaque gets really long because it's, like, multi-layered, And it's just, like, what are we even doing? My most uh, cynical uh, theory about why this continues to be a almost yearly conversation is because it's a really easy way for politicians to rile up their base and get more money and get more votes because people are going to donate and they're going to vote. If you say they're taking God out of the country and I'm going to bring them back because I have a plaque of the 10 commandments. And so that's really, it's really politically expedient to drum up fear that the liberals are taking God out of society and we can fix it. If you vote to put the plaque back. Well, and it's just crazy to boil God down to the Ten Commandments listed on the plaque when Jesus literally says, like, I came to fulfill the law. And he did. And it's done. Right. So it, I, it's just, <laughs> if we were to think, what is the one uh, aspect of scripture that we can put up on a plaque that is going to um, really be the heart and the essence of our faith? Right. I wouldn't think of the Ten Commandments. I would actually maybe even think a bit of the opposite because Jesus says, hey, like, I'm here to lighten your burden. Jesus says, hey, like, dude, I'm here to lighten it. (laughs) I'm here to lighten your burden. Like, you are no longer bound by this law that has been the operating rule for, like, thousands of years now. right? Right. You're free from this. It's quite the opposite. Right. Of what we're trying to say it is. Right. But we do live in a society with laws and laws are important to well, keep certainly. back evil in the same way that, you know, God says that the the role of government is to, you know, punish the evildoer. And so, well, yes, I'm that's a saying, biblical principle. I'm but do we slap laws, the Ten Commandments on it? That's not helpful. I don't think. I'm not saying laws don't matter. I'm just no, I understand that's not what you're the, saying. But as, I'm for the listener. I'm saying okay. that that I'm clarifying that that's what you believe. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for telling people what I believe. I appreciate it. (laughs) Lest they misconstrue you and think that you're saying something that you are not. Thanks for the clarification. You got it. Okay. Hot take number three. And this is probably my coldest take. Like this one has been sitting out for a while. Um, We didn't have the little burners underneath it. So this is kind of a cold take in my opinion. You you can be the judge. Uh, Watching The Chosen isn't a violation of the second commandment. So... 
this I feel like is fairly obvious, but it bears repeating because it's recently been called into question by a number of people in evangelicalism who just like to call things into question. Uh, but recently, uh, Vodi Bakum, who is something of a culture warrior himself, he was on the Babylon Bee podcast of all places. So take that with whatever seriousness you feel that that deserves. Um, but he said that watching The Chosen, which is a series about the life and ministry of Jesus, it's a sin because it violates the second commandment, which says that we are prohibited from making graven images of God that we would worship instead of God. And uh, Vody Bakum is not the only one. Uh, there's a bunch of people in like the G3 organization that have been, you know, saying this for a while now. I mean, this, the series is uh, the four seasons coming out soon. So they've been saying this for years now. Um, and Dallas Jenkins, who created the show, he responded to it, uh, and I thought his response was right on, but he basically said, you know, unless you're intending to worship Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus, it's it's hard to say that The Chosen is an idol. I mean, like, are we not allowed to have crosses in our churches? Like, how iconoclastic are we going here? And in fact, like, sometimes creating, like, creative depictions of biblical events, it actually sparks people's faith and their interest in the biblical account, and they want to read the Bible because, you know, there was something that touched them in a way that it might not have done before. And uh, Dallas Jenkins says that viewers of The Chosen, they contact him all the time, and they tell him that the show has done just that. So instead of worshiping Jonathan Rumi, the show has actually helped them to worship Jesus more. And so there's that. Um, but Tamara, what do you think? Is there any danger in watching something like The Chosen uh, of it being an idol that we would worship? Or are there perhaps more pressing idols that we should be concerned with? I like the way you framed that question. Yeah. It's like you're already tipping your hand in the question itself. That's what we in the biz <laughs> call a leading question. Thank you. I'm not in the biz. You are. So I appreciate your help. On... My question is, why do you think he's wrong? Yeah, it's, that's basically <laughs> what you just said. So, uh, I mean, are there con- could there be somebody out there who might like worship the chosen? I mean, maybe, but it that probably, person probably not has some someone, other issues. Though. Right. Like some not someone who is in like their right mind. Thing maybe that person should seek help if that's where they're at, but yeah, I don't see that being an issue. I mean, there's other concerns I think around the chosen because obviously they're trying to fill in a lot of gaps, but uh, that are not within the text itself. So they're taking some liberties, and as viewers, we need to understand that. But from the issue of people being concerned about it becoming like an idol, and we shouldn't make graving images, like I don't, I think that's. A silly argument. Yeah, and even Dallas Jenkins, who, by the way, is the son of Jerry B. Jenkins, who was the co-author with Tim LaHaye of the Left Behind series. It took me way longer than it should have to make that. that Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so he he Hmm. will constantly say, like, the show is not the Bible. Right. Read your Bible. Yeah. We are doing a creative reenactment of plausibly, if we inserted right. ourselves into this story, what would that plausibly look like? And he has a team of, you know, biblical scholars and, you know, historians and all kinds of people that he goes to and says, is this plausible if it was written and portrayed this way? And they try to keep it as plausible as possible. But he says, this is not the Bible. Read your Bible. Uh, this is one interpretation of how we think it plausibly could have gone. And so 
you know, the makers of the show are not trying to get you to to worship Jonathan Rumi. And right. I don't think people are, what, are worshiping Jonathan no. Rumi. No, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to use, like, modern-day um, context and point people to Christ through that. And so, like... Oh, you mean modern-day, like, media? Media, Like, the, like yeah. the creative storytelling, yes. the serial storytelling. The way yes. that we all like sit down and watch shows like that is very much part of our culture part of the way that we engage part of the way that we think through things too um and so for them to try and use that type of media to point you to christ like it makes sense certainly take some of it with a grain of salt because it's not word for word from scripture and there's a lot in scripture that wasn't so scripture wasn't written so that you can have like a step-by-step of the ways of Jesus. Like scripture was trying to get at something and not just recount every move Jesus made. Right. Yeah. It's a theological telling of right. the events that occurred. Yeah. So that was hot take number three. Hot take number four. The third commandment is not about saying bad words. So the third of the Ten Commandments, it instructs the people of Israel not to take the Lord's name in vain. But most often, Christians interpret this to mean that we shouldn't use God's name in a curse word. So you shouldn't say GD or you shouldn't say Jesus Christ, like as an exclamation when you're frustrated. And I'm not saying that you should say those things, but that's not actually what (laughs) this commandment is talking about, even in the slightest. This, This commandment isn't so much about what we do with God's name as it is what we do in God's name. So in its original context, God was calling the people of Israel not to use his name or to leverage his authority in order to make a covenant or to advocate for something that was outside of his will or his character. So say like God says that, you know, in under the authority of someone who follows God, here's what we should do, but the thing that you're trying to get somebody to do isn't actually something that God would want. That's what is being talked about in this commandment of taking the Lord's name in vain. Like sort of when you say, um, if you are a follower of Christ, the only person you can vote for is so-and-so. Yes, that, that is taking is the Lord's taking name in vain. the Lord's name in vain. Yeah. And we see that. All the time. All the time. We, yeah. And, and a lot of times people will say like, the Bible is clear. You have to vote Republican. Or the Bible is clear. If you take it seriously, then you can't vote Republican. Or uh, whatever it might be where we talk about oh, pretty much anytime someone says the Bible is clear, not in every case, but in most cases when someone says the Bible is clear, that's a little yellow flag. Like, oh, somebody's about to take the Lord's name in vain right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you actually wrote a blog on this, didn't you? I did. Yeah. yeah we'll link to we it in the show notes. That. Because that was a good, I remember we had some pretty good engagement about um, that blog. I got a little bit of hate mail on that one because someone's like, why are you making this political about, right. you know, saying that you have to vote Republican? I'm like, well, I just, that just seems like a really contemporary, it's obvious an, example that happens all the time. Right. Because what happens, and not only within the political sense, but within a lot of senses, I think pastors who are standing at the pulpit and their job is to like preach the text to the congregation right so they're in some ways not like speaking on behalf of god but going through scripture and interpreting that and then teaching it so there is some authority behind that and if those people start to leverage the name of god 
uh, so that they can persuade anyone to have a certain viewpoint or um, live a certain way that is not actually uh, detailed within scripture, then that is an offense against this commandment. Yeah, and I think we saw a lot of that during the pandemic where it was people getting frustrated that their pastor wouldn't take the Lord's name in vain and say that, like, here's the exact thing that you have to believe and you have to do in order to be a Christian. There were a lot of pastors saying, like, okay, here's what we think the best practices are. Here's the the way that we we think we can contribute to not spreading this disease. Um, here's what the the wisdom that we have. We're, we're this is what we're going to do. We're trying to be faithful. Um, because we know that that God wants us to love our neighbors. And so, like, there's a big difference between that and saying, like, if you love Jesus, you will either wear a mask or not wear a mask. And people were saying it on either side. Right. And, you know, followings were made and lost in terms Mm. of, like, people moving from church to church on where you landed on that. Uh, But really, um, a lot of people during the pandemic gained a pretty massive following, taking the Lord's name in vain, um, by relating some kind of uh, pandemic opinion to uh, and ascribing it to the authority of God himself. And so I just think that that's an ever-present danger, um, I think especially for church leaders, either to fall prey to that or to um, just really have to suffer the pressure of your own people trying to pressure you to say things, thus saith the Lord, that the Lord has not saith. Mm, yeah, and... Which isn't to Uh, say that, like, there isn't wisdom to be had in those conversations politically or whatever. You just can't say, thus saith the Lord, when he hasn't. Mm -hmm. You say, I sense from what God has said that it leads us in a certain direction, and I think that direction is this. That's perfectly fine. That's not taking the Lord's name in vain. But when you're so declarative about it and say, like, this is the only interpretation, that's where you're in dangerous water. And there is a lot of gray within scripture um, in regards to like daily things that we encounter in our cultural setting because scripture was not written for our culture. I mean, it surpasses all culture and all time, but to go to scripture for every small thing that we're encountering and try and find what exactly did God say about this, like you're not going to find that. You're not going to find... What did God have to say about public schools versus homeschools? What did God have to say about depression medication? Like what? There's so many things that we are now encountering in our lives that you're not going to be able to go to, you know, John five twelve and find exactly God is rebuking something or he's um, advocating for something because that's not what the Bible is meant to do either. Um, right. It's not. Yeah, so there's wisdom that we have to have. And I think that's the beauty of Proverbs, too. Uh, Proverbs is all about wisdom uh, and and exercising wisdom and discernment within the context of your life because you might actually have one situation that leads you to a certain decision and a, a different situation that leads you somewhere else. Um, and so it's not always the same every single time and you have to learn how to exercise wisdom and seek the Holy Spirit for his guidance. And if a pastor or a leader is saying, here is, is my recommendation about how we should handle this as believers, that's perfectly fine. Unless they start saying, this 
if you are a believer, this is the only way that you can respond to this scenario. Yeah. That is not explicitly written in Scripture. And the unfortunate thing is that the the pastors who were like, here's the best wisdom that we have right now. Here's our plan. We're trying to, you know, be reasonable, but we're also trying to uh, stop the spread of this disease. Those are the pastors that got absolutely slaughtered in their communities by, you know, people saying like, you're weak. You're you're a sheep, not a lion, Uh, which is uh, a weird insult because uh, the devil is described as a lion in the Bible and the faithful followers of Jesus are described as sheep. But that's neither here nor there. Um, we probably offended uh, more people with that hot take Let's than we did. We went to we yeah, we you, went to to, to a bunny trail. Far. All right, here we go. Last hot take: the sixth commandment does not require Christian pacifism. I recently watched the the movie called Hacksaw Ridge, which, by the way, is not a family film. I will warn you right now: it's a good movie, but it is not a family no, film. I, I was like, oh, so it. that's what intestines look like. I was I can't remember. I was like eating something. And I was oh, like, gosh. oh my goodness! Like <laughs> my stomach is down. literally turning. And I wouldn't say like I have a queasy stomach, but that I wasn't ready. Yeah, Maybe so that's all it it's a World War II movie, and it's about this soldier named Desmond Dodd. It's based on a true story. Who was a Christian pacifist who was a soldier in World War II. And so he wouldn't pick up a gun and he wouldn't shoot anybody, um, but he still wanted to serve as an army medic in the field. And everyone thought he was crazy, but, you know, he went through the boot camp and he did the whole thing. And he ended up in a war, unarmed, and he ended up saving 75 fellow soldiers who had been wounded. But the reason why Dodd was a pacifist and he wouldn't pick up a gun was because of the Sixth Commandment, which says, you shall not kill. And Dodd was a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, and they take that verse just absolutely literally. And so um, they are pacifistic, you know, to, you know, the fullest extent of that. But if you look at the rest of the law, um, interpreting that in such a literalistic way isn't necessarily consistent with what we read uh, in the rest of the Mosaic Law, because in the rest of the Mosaic Law, God doesn't seem to be against killing people in every single circumstance. In fact, violating the Seventh Commandment, which forbids adultery, it actually carries a death sentence in the very same Mosaic Law. So there are situations in which God uh, either condoned or even um, mandated uh, death uh, in the Mosaic Law. Uh, he prescribed Israel to go to war in certain instances. And so the details of all of that are a whole other conversation worth its own episode. And I think we did an episode relating to this at some point. We talked about just war theory versus Christian pacifism. I'll look through the archives and I'll link that in the show notes. Um, But at the heart of it, uh, what God is forbidding in this commandment is not killing of any kind, but wrongful killing, uh, the murder of someone else. Um, But when it comes to war or someone being executed for some kind of heinous crime, uh, that's not what God is talking about here. You can still be a Christian pacifist. uh, You can still be anti-death penalty. um, But you're not necessarily going to get it from this verse. Uh, It's going to take a lot more work and a lot more theology to build a case around that. um, Because all of this kind of leaves in question, you know, how we interpret lethal force in the Bible, whether it's prescriptive, whether it was descriptive. A mixture of both. Um, But Tamara, what do you think the Christian's relationship to war, executions, other killings that seem to be endorsed 
by the Old Testament law? What is our relationship to that? Does the New Testament reshape that, reinforce it? What's going on? That's such a loaded question. You want me to talk about all aspects of uh, killing within Scripture and how do we understand them to be? Just give me a general sense. You know, give me the cliff notes. Give me the... Exactly. Give me the summary sheet, executive Gosh. summary. So um, as we look at the Ten Commandments specifically and it talking about like do not kill, um, it immediately reminds me of the first siblings in Genesis, mm-hmm. Cain and Abel. Mm-hmm. And like there was some like anger and hate and jealousy with, between the brothers and then all of a sudden there was death mm-hmm. because of that. So that's really what this is at is you don't just get to walk over and kill somebody wrongfully just because you're mad at them. Like right. that's not a pass to kill. Um, and so war, I think we, we can understand war in a different context of it's not this one-to-one, like I am walking up to you, Dale and killing you. I mean, it'd probably be in your sleep. I probably wouldn't walk up to you and do it, but right. I'd see you coming. You wouldn't see me if I walked. Yeah. But don't worry. When you're sleeping, you wouldn't. You would just be snoring so loud. No, if, if I walked you up to you, you might not notice know. I was walking up to you. Yeah, that's true. Because I walk around you, the rooms of my own home. All and the she time. goes, ah! <laughs> And I was like, I live here too. I've been here all day. Yes. So all of the like murder podcasts um, that so many people are like interested in, all of those types of murders and killings are what this uh, commandment is speaking against do not kill do not kill your spouse do not kill your kids do not kill your neighbor do not kill a random stranger walking by but um, <laughs> dr Sousa pro-life over here <laughs> <laughs> that's not where i was trying to go with this but when it comes to war that's different because a lot of the times it's in um protection of the entire nation and another nation is attacking you and so it it wouldn't then be um labeled as murder right yeah because yeah it's not a wrongful killing yes it is a sanctioned killing and um there's this idea that the government has a monopoly on violence which is not a christian idea it's a philosophical idea but i think it's congruent with say romans 13 where it talks right. about the, the, the role of government mm-hmm. is to punish the evildoer. Yes. So there is a role within that. And that does become a little bit more complex, I think, um, as you even look back and take note of the number of wars that America's been involved in. Like, were they sanctioned wars? Were they not sanctioned wars? So that does take some discernment as well. Yeah, I think the more that I've thought about this, I'm still not in the camp of of Desmond Dodd, uh, who's like, you know, even if, you know, somebody's going to come murder you and your entire family, like you're nonviolent to the fullest extent. Um, But I feel myself moving closer to that end of the spectrum, even if I'm not all the way on that end of the spectrum, away from the uh, kind of staunch militarism that that you that marks a lot of evangelicalism that we are um really willing to to go shed some blood um as a as a first move as a show of strength and to build our military so that like we can be the people who shed the most blood if somebody messes with us our interests in in the world well and i think a really um 
like great example, not great in the way of like we support it, but great example in the way that it explains this is the Crusades. Uh, the idea of going and killing right. people for for the name of Jesus, like that wasn't. That's not what we're talking about in the Old Testament of, um, or really anywhere within Scripture that would advocate for that kind of uh, labeling that as sanction killing. Right, and that, I mean that goes as far That'd back as as Constantine, yeah, in the fourth century, putting the symbol of. Uh, Christ on his shield Mm -hmm. and saying like, okay, like we're taking this empire for Christ. Um, There's some, something really distorted about that. Yeah. Um, Not to say that we shouldn't have military. We shouldn't have police who can protect people um, from violent evildoers. Um, But I think we are really allured by violence as a means of protection. Um, in a way that I think is often unhealthy and uh, does not consider how can we create a a place where where peace prevails uh, without using violence to have to get there. Uh, I think the same thing goes for like um, the death penalty. Mm, I think yeah. too often Christians are like, yeah, nuke them, fry them. And uh, yeah, I just don't know that that's the way of Jesus in terms of like, I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian and, and support the death penalty, but I, I mean the the ethos of the attitude I don't think is the way of Jesus. That if we um, are sending someone to you know the gas chamber or the lethal injection or whatever it might be, um, there should be no sense of victory in that, mm. even if we sense that it's just. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that phrases it really well. Like we shouldn't be excited about sending someone to their death. Yeah. Yeah. Like that shouldn't, yeah. We shouldn't be excited to sit and watch that. We shouldn't, um, I I can't remember what I read recently, but that um, at some point um, there was like this town where people would gather around just to see who was um, actually going to be sentenced to death that day right. and like watching it happen mm-hmm. that used to be like very we, common we shouldn't in centuries feel past. comfortable sitting there watching another life be taken regardless of why they got there yeah even too in the news this week there was a high profile uh, sexual assault case that someone got sentenced in and they got like the maximum sentence and that case was significant in, in kind of like the me too movement and so it was uh, symbolic in a lot of ways of like finally like justice is done. But then when I, I sat down and I thought about it, I was like, wow, like that's that sentence is really long and severe. And like it was totally just. But at the same time, I felt grief about it because like mm. there's just a loss of life, you know. Yeah. Anytime there's a loss of, of life or a sense of humanity, um, even when it's just, that's something that should like grieve us yeah. because even if justice is done – uh, there is someone who is created in the image of God, even though they they did heinous things that you know their life or their their life as they know it is being taken from them. Which I'm not saying it shouldn't be, but um, yeah, we just shouldn't feel like happy about that, even if it's yeah. like a victory and you're like, yes, this is justice that is being fought for. Um, yeah, we should just be grieved. I think we should be more grieved than we are instead of dancing in the streets at people's demise. Even if their demise was necessary for the greater cause of justice and right. and all those things, yeah, it's just such a reminder that um, like the world we live in is fallen, 
and there's so much tension because yes in that scenario like uh, someone was brought to justice but it still isn't the scenario that you would want to live in right like even when justice is done the the damage to humanity remains and is furthered in some ways uh, be, by that justice even though you we shouldn't change it because it is just so there's a tension there and i'm not sure what to do with it but here we find ourselves so these have been our hot takes on the ten commandments if you disagree with us you can email us at tamra chamberlain <laughs> get out of here <laughs> no you can email us at info at kynosproject.com i will read those emails uh, but more importantly even if you didn't agree with us on everything, uh, this is a bit of a case study in how complicated it can be to properly interpret the Bible, particularly when it comes to the Old Testament. It can be easy to come up with you know, these literalistic interpretations that seem morally simple, and we like that, uh, but they don't actually grapple with what the authors of Scripture, who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, what they were actually trying to get across. And so too often, we're all too willing to accept pat answers and simple interpretations that have been handed down to us because, you know, what reason is there to question them? This is what everybody thinks. And so part of the purpose of this podcast is to give you some tools to reevaluate some of those things, uh, not because, and this is super important, not because we want to throw away the authority of Scripture, but because we want to take the authority of Scripture as seriously as we possibly can. And so... Uh, if we are going to take the authority of Scripture seriously, what we have to understand is that there's going to be a certain level of complexity and at times even uncertainty that we're going to have to grapple with as well. And so that is the journey that we are on, and we hope that that's the journey that you are on as well as we seek to figure out what it is that God wants us to do in this life and in the world. Thanks for listening to the Kynos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kynosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Ted, what do you want to do today? Well, Ashley, I've always got uh, work to do, naps to take, but I have a better idea. How about we invite everyone to listen to the Team Us podcast? I love that idea. Let's do it right now. Hi, everyone. We're Ted and Ashley Slater, and we'd love for you to join us as we talk about teamwork in marriage. We share how grace, commitment, and cooperation can help couples live the everyday moments of marriage together. To listen, go to lifeaudio.com and search for Team Us.